Well, today I want to continue in the series, Room to Breathe, and I have so much to share with you, so you're going to need to take notes fast, listen fast, and I'm going to ask you this morning to do something I never ask you to do, and that is don't clap because I want to get through this whole message this morning, okay? I want you to get this because I'm going to talk about something that people come to me all the time all through the years. I mean, I have just thought about this so much and have preached on it before, especially in those days when I was a youth pastor. But in our series, Room to Breathe, I want to talk to you about desires this morning. I want to talk to you about what Jesus meant about lust and what he meant about desire. Desire is a good thing. God created you with desires. We all need desires. A mother was preparing breakfast for her little girl one morning, and she said to her daughter, she said, would you like a bagel or would you like oatmeal for breakfast? And her little girl said, chocolate. And her mother said, that wasn't an option. Would you like a bagel or would you like oatmeal? The little girl again said, chocolate. And she looked at her daughter and says, I tell you what, you can have chocolate after lunch. She says, now, which do you want? And the little girl went, lunch. She knew the way to get to the chocolate, and I think so many of us, we want to take shortcuts when it comes to desires in our life. We all get cravings. Cravings, again, that's a part of who we are. I mean, when I wake up in the morning, I have to deny a craving. If I got up every morning and ate, ate what I want, grits and gravy, cane syrup with lots of butter and biscuits and several slices of bacon beside it, friends, I'd spread out like a U.S. map from coast to coast. But I love, it's a craving that I have. And occasionally, I satisfy that craving. We have cravings for our appetites. We have cravings for things that we would like to own or like to possess. Maybe you see a car that all of a sudden you go, that is the most awesome car I've ever seen in my life. And every time you drive down the highway, suddenly you notice one. You notice it on the car lot. Or maybe you have a craving for something else in your life, like success or like prosperity. And if we're not careful, then those cravings become a difference between lust and desire. You see, here's the thing that I have learned, and especially when I worked in mental health, I remember having these conversations, and that is people are never happier after they satisfy a craving. They're never happier. Once you eat the grits and gravy and the biscuits and the cane syrup with the butter and you have the bacon, you know what you think about? Oh, my goodness, what have I done to my arteries? What have I done to my health? And you begin to think about all the bad things. Once you've satisfied that craving for maybe sexual desires and you go to the pornographic site on the Internet and maybe for a while you satisfy those cravings, you come away with that sense of dirtiness and guilt before the Lord and before your, your children, before your wife or your husband. You see, there are these cravings that all of us have, and there's a big, big difference. Now listen, there's a big difference between the cravings of our self-will and the flesh and the deepest desires of the human soul. 
Let me say that again because that is so important. There is a deep, deep difference between the cravings of the human flesh or the self-will, what we will for ourselves, not the body. The body is not evil, but the self-will and the deep desires of the human soul as God has created us. You see, cravings can be met quickly. Cravings can be met fast and furious. And cravings leave you hungering for more. But fulfilling the heart's desire, well, that takes something more. Fulfilling the heart's desire takes something supernatural. Really fulfilling your heart's desire, it takes Jesus Christ. And so when I reflect upon what the senator said this week, I think about the fact I need Jesus. I need fellowship with Jesus. I want Jesus more than anything. When, we, when I was a boy, we would used to sing a song that would say, I'd rather have Jesus in silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus in wealth untold. You see, Jesus is the key to human desires. It takes the supernatural for God to give us because every one of us, listen, every one of us have a desire. Well, I've taught you this for over 20 years. Every one of us have a desire to be loved and to love. To be loved and to love. Everybody who walks in the doors of this church, whether it's someone we know or someone we don't know, has written across their forehead, will you love me? Will you accept me? That's another way of saying, will you love me? Will you be a loving congregation? Will you be a loving Christian? And there's that desire that we would also be loved. And I hope that every single one of you in here and those of you that are taking time to watch us online, you know that not only God loves you, you, but we love you here at Woodland Church. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me out of respect for the word of the Lord. I want to read two verses to you this morning. One is a new one for this series, and the second one is one that we looked at last week. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. I will read it, then I'm going to ask you to read it with me. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Let's read that together. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. What has God given you? The desire, but he's also given you the power. Remember what I said? To fulfill those deep desires, it takes Jesus. You've got to have that supernatural element. God will give you the right desires. The Bible says as you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. He will put the desires of your heart. Now, last week, we looked at an important scripture that is the predicate for today's message. And that comes from what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 and verse 30. Read it with me out loud. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. What are we to seek above all else? The kingdom of God. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we want to be taught of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we want to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And Heavenly Father, we want to delight in the desires that you have given for us. And I thank you that while we walk through this 40-day fast together, we are not focused upon what we're giving up, but like our Savior, we are focused upon the joy that is set before us. 
And we would never dare compare our fast with the sufferings, Lord Jesus, that you endured upon Calvary for us. But today, Lord, keep us focused on the joy. Jesus, you are the joy of all of our desires. For it's in your name we pray, and everybody said amen, amen, and amen. God bless you. You can be seated this morning. When I read the books or the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it is probably the most pastoral of the epistles that I read. When I read the epistles of 1st John, I get a better understanding of who I need to be and what I need to be as a pastor. So I would like to talk to you for just a moment about a pastor's understanding of desire compared with the world's understanding. I talk with people about this all the time. I get calls sometimes too late. I get calls sometimes in the middle of the battle. Sometimes I get calls before a decision is made. And when people make decisions according to the desires of the world, it always ends in disaster because the enemy will never produce anything but death. The enemy will always be a liar. The enemy will always try to seduce you into destruction because he not only hates God, listen to me, friend, he hates you as a human being because you are created in the image of God. And I think that's one of the reasons that our world has been so focused on trying to destroy the truth, which you can never destroy, that human beings are created in God's image. You are not evolved from some protoplasm. You are not an accident, but you are the divine choice of God. And you need to always remember that every time you look in the mirror, I'm reflecting the image of God. Psalms 37 and 4, take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desire. Look at Pastor John's understanding, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For the world only offers a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. What is Pastor John talking about? Number one, it's the desire to do, the craving for pleasure. It's that desire that all of us have for adventure, for fun, for pleasure. There's nothing wrong with that craving, but we want to point that craving in the right direction. A very wise man by the name of Solomon wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. You would do yourself well to study and soak long in the book of Ecclesiastes. But he, Solomon is known as the wisest man that ever lived, the richest king that ever lived. He was a powerful man. He was blessed of God. And yet Solomon made some huge mistakes in his life that he's candid enough under the anointing of the Holy Spirit to tell us about. Look at what he said. He said to himself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. In other words, if you look at the ellipsis later that I put in there, you'll see that Solomon was trying every form of pleasure, and he found that it was meaningless, and it, meaningless, and it wasn't bringing him any happiness at all. And then he writes about the desire to have, or the craving for everything we see. We want to possess it. We want to own it. And in a 
real way, that's what lust does. That's a disordered desire. That's a mismanaged desire. Lust is where we take something and we try to own it. We want to own another human being. I don't own my wife. I don't own my children. I don't own this church. I don't even own my money as we looked at last week. Everything I have belongs to God. Remember what John Wesley said last week? Somebody came and told him, Mr. Wesley, your house burnt down. And Mr. Wesley just simply replied, no, it was the Lord's house that burnt down. I came into this world with nothing. I will leave this world with nothing. It all belongs to God. But lust says, I want to possess somebody. I want to possess something. Listen, Paul, Solomon goes on and says, I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself, what we would call McMansions today or palaces. I had everything a man could desire. And he did. He had everything a man could desire. It's like one of my sons said one time when we were reading through Ecclesiastes and we were reading about Solomon, as he, said to my, he said to me, he said, Dad, it sounds like Solomon had a wife for every day of the year plus special ones for holidays. And he said, sounds like a pretty good deal. I said, son, I have enough trouble just taking care of your mom, much less taking care of that many wives. And we've talked about that since he's gotten married. We've laughed about that. And his wife looked at him one night and says, honey, you can't handle the one you've got already. You see, there is this craving to have everything we see. You know, if you get that new car that you're seeing right now, it won't be long before you want another car. And it's amazing to me, people move into houses. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. And there are real estate agents in the church can probably tell you this. They'll say, you know what? I found my forever home. And then all of a sudden something happens. They get a promotion. They get a bonus. And they think getting a bigger house in a nicer neighborhood with a better address is going to make them happier. You see, satisfying cravings will never leave you happy. There's a deep difference between the cravings or the desires of the flesh and the deepest desires of the soul. And then Solomon said, you know, he wrestled with the desire to be. This is pride. This is achievement. This is his craving to achieve and to make a name for himself, to be somebody. So he said, I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. How many of you wish you could say that, that your wisdom never failed you? He said, my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, think about about your education, think about your career, think about your vocation, think about all of these things that you've worked to accomplish. He said, it was also meaningless. It was like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. And you go, wow, pastor, what's the point of living? I am so glad you asked that question because I would like to answer that question for you right now. Number one, I want us to learn how to delight in our deepest desires. Somebody say amen this morning. I want us to learn how to delight in the deepest desires of our heart. And for me, I will tell you this, Jesus is the deepest joy, the deepest desire I have in my heart. And because of Jesus, everything else, whether it's marriage, whether it's my own personal 
personal vocation, whatever it is in life, Jesus has made it that much more riching and fulfilling. Without Jesus, life is meaningless. With Jesus, life has fulfillment. Without Jesus, life ends in, eternity, in ter eternal futility in a place called hell. But with Jesus, life ends up as a joy and a celebration with those who love the Lord forevermore. This week, we had a very good friend, 58 years old, a pastor down in Georgia who passed away. COVID, it, he had some underlying health issues, and COVID happened to him, and he, he died in the presence of the Lord. But he died after having loved Jesus and raised his family to love Jesus and to talk with them and hear his love for Christ and remember the times seeing him pray for the sick and remember the times to see him comfort the afflicted. I think of what a joyous ending his life must have had upon this earth as he stepped into the presence of God and hears welcome home. So let's look at what Solomon would later write, this very wise man, in Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 15. He says, I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil throughout the days of his life that God has given him under the sun that God has given him under the sun. Your days, as we looked at last week, they're a gift to you. You're a steward of your time. Your talents, they're a gift to you. The skills, the gifts, the spiritual gifts that God has given to you, you're a steward of those. Your treasure, whatever financial resources that God has given you or material resources, those are a gift to you to use for him in this life. But I will tell you also, your testimony is a gift to you. The amazing story of God's grace in your life is fundamentally more important than your time, than your talent, or your treasure, but the story of God's grace that will reach somebody else and bring them to Jesus Christ. You see, God's gift of joy is greater than any pleasure that the flesh craves. God's gift of joy that comes in Christ. And sir, you will never know joy until you come to know Jesus Christ. Joy is something the world can't give. It can give you the fulfilling moment of a pleasure, but it will leave you craving more. But once you find Jesus, you will find yourself delighting in him. You will find yourself wanting him more and more. And may I suggest to you, Christian, listen, may I suggest to you, Christian, if you're sitting here this morning and you don't find yourself desiring more of Jesus, if you don't find yourself wanting to grow more in Jesus, if you don't find yourself wanting to lift your hands as you think about his love for you as we did just before communion, then my prayer, my plea with you as your pastor is get back on your knees before the Lord and ask him to restore to you the joy of your salvation. Do not let the enemy steal your joy for the joy of the Lord is our strength. Now, you see, I'm what's known not only as a Christian, but I'm known as a conservative. I don't mind that title. As a matter of fact, I kind of rejoice in that title. Conservatives, one of the things that we believe in is constraint. Now, my progressive friends, they believe in the freedom and the openness to do whatever they want to do. 
And when I sit down with my progressive friends or liberal friends, as some people call them, and we have honest, deep conversations about these things, it might be abortion, it might be sex, it might be money, it might be how we, we deal with marriage. When I sit down and talk to them, I say, if you could understand what a conservative Christian really believes, I would illustrate it like this, that when fire is in a fireplace, or when fire is in a furnace, or when fire is in an old-fashioned Franklin stove, then the power and the energy of that fire will warm your family. It will cook your meals. The fire can be a delightful place to gather around for festive holidays and conversation. If you can understand that the fire in the fireplace, that if you find a gray coal that has gone dead, you can push that coal back up in the fireplace, and soon it will glow with the love and the joy of the fire. But if you let that fire out of the fireplace, it will consume your home. It will burn the place down. Friends, this morning, what I suggest to you is we need the control, but we also need the openness to the Holy Spirit, because there's where we find the joy that God brings to us. It's why Pastor John would write in 2 John verse 12, then our joy would be complete. And as your pastor, one of the things that I want for you more than anything else in this world is complete and full and eternal joy. Joy is the result of my decision. Listen, this is control. Joy is the result of my decision to obey Jesus. It is not the result of my emotions. And there's the mistake I find a lot of Christians making sometimes. There's a mistake I find a lot of people who don't even know Jesus make sometimes. They're looking for something to make them feel good, to make them feel happy. Joy doesn't come as a result of emotions. Joy comes when you choose to obey Christ. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the agonies of the passion. He endured the sufferings of the cross because the joy that was before him was to see God glorified as you were saved from your sins. Now let's give him a hand of praise this morning, would you? Hallelujah. That's joy under control and openness to the will and the plan of God. God's gift of contentment is greater than stuff. God's gift of contentment is greater than houses. It's greater than cars. It's greater than any money or bank account or anything like that that you could ever have. You see, contentment is that rare thing in the world today. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6, listen, true godliness with contentment is in itself great wealth. Oh, contented people are happy people. Contented people are joyful people. Contented people are generous people. Contented people have learned how to have joy from controlling their finances. Contented people have learned to have joy in their marriage by obeying Jesus. In other words, husbands, as you love your wife, as Christ loved the church, you find joy in your marriage. Wives, as you submit it to your husbands as under Christ, you find joy in obedience to Christ and submitting to a husband that is uh, trying to possess you, submitting to a husband that is trying to control you. Sir, that is not loving 
loving your wife the way Christ loved the church. And the reason that so many women fear submission is because so many men are not loving the way that Christ loved the church. We live submitted to Christ. We live submitted to one another. We live submitted to the, to the authority of the church. We live in submission, friends, and we find contentment. You see, financial contentment is a decision about how to address our fear. You know, so many people are fearful they'll never have enough. It's amazing to me. I have had the privilege of ministering and talking to many, many very, very rich people through the years, but I've always found one common thing. Most of them still don't feel like they have enough. And you say, Pastor, how do you know that? Well, they'll compare their wealth with somebody else's wealth and say, mine is not nearly as much as theirs. Or they will talk about if something was to happen, if they would lose everything they had. I remember sharing with a very rich friend of mine about a mutual friend of ours who sold a tremendous business at a tremendous profit. As a matter of fact, this man had been so faithful with God in all of his finances. He served as president of a Christian school. He was an exemplary model of what a Christian should be and highly generous. And when I was sharing with one of my other wealthy friends, there was this moment of envy and says, well, he can afford to do that because he has so much more than I do. And yet my friend that I was talking talking to about him. He was struggling with discontent even though he was a millionaire. Now look at me. I don't know if remember if it was Getty or Rockefeller who said it, but somebody asked him, he says, how much money is enough? And that wealthy man said, just one dollar more. You see, without Christ, you'll never find contentment. There's always this craving. But when you find Jesus, you have found the pearl of great price. When you have found Jesus, you have found something that's worth more than silver and gold. And you can sing with a pure heart. I would rather have Jesus than rich is untold. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world can afford. Now let's give him another hand of praise this morning. Hallelujah. And then finally, God's gift of significance is greater than achievement. I love to achieve. I love to succeed in life. As a matter of fact, I talk about that quite a bit, and sometimes I have to remind myself there's more to talk about this is an area that I struggle in sometimes because achievement and success means a lot to me. I don't ever want to be crippled again. I don't ever want to be in a wheelchair again. I don't ever want to have to be fed again. I don't ever want to have to wear braces or anything like that again. I know what it means to have people do everything for you and the insignificance that you feel because of that. I, I know what it means to struggle with that. And so, friends, I want to tell you, this one is the one that strikes close to my heart because significance matters to me. And yet, when I read these words in Matthew 4, 19, I heard the call of God so clearly. It is not the call to a preacher. It is not the call to a missionary. It is not the call to evangelists. It is the call to every single one of us listening this morning, whether you're listening at home or whether you're with us in service today. Jesus called out to them, come follow me. There's where you find significance, and I will show you how to fish for people. There's where you find achievement as you reach your family, as you reach your neighbors, and you reach your friends for the glory of God. Following Jesus, friends, will give you the significance that you long for in your life. But you see, achievements in following Jesus, now that takes just a little bit of explaining this morning. 
There are people that I ask to walk with me every year, walk with me in a journey of discipleship and walk with me in a journey of mentorship. Some people will say to me, oh, Pastor, I'm, I'm eager to do that and I'm ready to go. And so when I show them what it means, other people will go, I'm not sure that's what I'm ready for. And that's okay. I understand everybody's at a different place. There's no rebuke or anything in that. I would rather have the honest reply of somebody saying, I'm not ready yet. But I would say, get ready. If you've never been discipled, if you've never walked close for the Lord, and I hope this morning that somehow or another this message is doing that for you today. But you see, it takes a dream. It takes a dream because when Jesus calls you and says, come follow me, you begin to dream. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What would it look like as I follow Jesus? Oh, there will be commonality between all of us as we follow Jesus. But the path God has called Dr. Rodney to take, the God, path God has called you to take, the path that God has called you, Ruth, to take. It's all different for each of us. There are common things that, number one, that is revolve around obedience and revolve around service. But you see, God calls us to dream as we pray about that dream. The second thing, when you follow the dream that God has put upon your heart, I will tell you this, it takes courage. It takes courage to pursue the dream in your heart. It takes courage to follow Christ. One time the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, we have left everything. Lord, where else can we go? For you have the words of life. These were not ignorant men. These were men who counted the cost to follow Jesus and become fishers of men. But it also takes faith. It takes faith that you know that following God's word is not going to leave you shipwrecked. Following God's word is not going to leave you abandoned. Following God's word is not going to leave you joyless. Even if you are beaten for your faith, even if you are beaten for your testimony, those apostles walked out of there bleeding and wounded, but they lifted up those wounded backs and they lifted their hands and they rejoiced. They had joy because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. And would to God that we would escape the comforts of modern day Western Christianity where it's all about my comfort and my pleasure, and we would live for the pleasure and the glory of God. It takes courage to be a man of God. Real men, real women apply to Jesus Christ and say, make me a fisher of men. And then finally, it takes action. It's not just singing about it. It's not just talking about it in the comfort of this place or the comfort of your home. It's about following Christ in the thick and the fury of this world. So let me just walk through this growth work with you for just a little bit this morning. Let's look again at what we talked about last week. Discipleship is stewardship. Discipleship is stewardship. It is stewardship of your time, your life. It is stewardship of your treasure, those things that God has given you, material and non-material. It is stewardship of your talents, your gifts, your spiritual gifts, your, the, the skill sets that you have. But it's also stewardship of the testimony you have. You see, stewardship is personal. When we talk about stewardship, I want to tell you, sometimes people can have funny reactions to that. Sometimes people are more afraid of the word of stewardship than they are of the devil. Now think about that. Sometimes people are more afraid of stewardship than they are of hell. You don't need to be afraid of the devil or you don't need to be afraid of hell. But I can tell you this, almost every week, somebody in our community is going to call me about the subject of hell. 
Almost every week, somebody's going to call me. They say, we know that you believe in healing and prayer, and that there's something going on in our home. There's something going on in my company. It's evil. Do you think this could be the devil? You talk to those same people about stewardship of their time, talent, treasure, and testimony. Oh, you're getting too personal. Stewardship is personal. Stewardship is personal. Don't you ever forget that. Stewardship is about taking up your cross and following Jesus. You see, when you desire Jesus more than anything else, you'll have a joyful marriage. You'll find healing. But you'll find that you'll also have to say no to disordered desires. Because sex is a wonderful thing when it's constrained in the fireplace of marriage. And when it's constrained in the fireplace of marriage, there is romantic joy that will outshine any movie you've ever watched, that will outglow any romance novel you've ever read when you have the constraint. And to my progressive friends, I say, and when you obey Jesus in a biblical marriage between one man and one woman, you will find joyful romance like you've never known. If I had time, I would flesh that out for each one of those. So desire to live thankful for your salvation. Ask the Lord one more time, restore the joy of my salvation. What have you spent most of your week thinking about, praying about? You see, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in heaven He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. You can trust God. Look at me right here. You can trust God. Every good and perfect gift that will leave you joyful, that will fulfill your every desire, it comes down from God, and God doesn't change. You don't have to worry about mood swings with God. You don't have to worry about God getting older and bitter. God just gets better and better. Well, he never changes, so you just can't get any better than God. Pizarro, you studied about him in school. Remember Pizarro? How that they were stuck in Panama. His little army was down to 12 men. His men didn't want to leave the comforts of Panama. They had spent their lives, so many of them died, looking for those treasured cities in Peru. And they were in danger of revolting. You remember the story. Pizarro pulled out his sword, and he drew a line in the sand east to west. He said, on this side of the line, on the north side, there's comfort. On this side of the line, there's security. But on this side of the line, somewhere south of us is Peru. Somewhere south of us is what we've been looking for. Somewhere south of us, there's what we want, but it will will require hardship. It will require suffering, and some of us may die. He said, and all of those who want to go with me, you can all stay on this side of the line, but if you want to go with me, you have to step across the line today. And that's what Jesus is saying to you this morning. He's drawn a line in the sand when he went to Calvary. It's what we read this morning. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And Jesus says to you, there's a line in the sand. That's why we call giving our hearts to Christ at Woodland Church, crossing the line. And Jesus says, when you cross this line, you'll find everything you're looking for. He doesn't promise you there won't be hardship. He doesn't promise you there won't be suffering. And some of us, like our friend Tim, may go to heaven earlier than some of the rest of us. But oh, what Tim has discovered. By the way, all of Pizarro's men crossed the line and followed him on the journey. I'm asking you to cross the line and give your heart to Jesus. And if you haven't been joyful in your salvation, get back on your knees and pray, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Two more things quickly and we're going to pray. I'm out of time. Stewardship is powerful. Desire to be generous with God. With your time, your talent, and your treasure. Indonesia, the country that we've been raising funds to pay for a Bible college student. We've already paid for two. Today's the last Sunday I'm going to mention it. Two students are 236 unreached people groups in the nation of Indonesia. Say that number with me. 236. Say it again. 236. And many of them in their villages have never had the gospel of Jesus Christ preached there before since Jesus walked the face of this earth 2,000 years ago. Can you imagine the fear that hell must have that there are congregations like ours that are saying, we're going to send these young men and women and pay for their four years of Bible college, only $3,100 to pay for their Bible college so they can go and reach these tribes. The missionaries wrote me this week, overwhelmed with your generosity. You see, stewardship is powerful. You're causing hell to tremble this morning because Satan has had a grip on the fourth most populated nation in the world, more people than Russia. Hell has had a grip there. But somewhere in Brownstown, Michigan, and outside of the metro area, when I say Brownstown, even in Michigan, people say, where is that at? <laughs> I want you to know, Satan knows where we're at because the powers of hell are trembling because stewardship is not only personal, it's powerful. So be generous this morning. Always be generous. Open purse and hands. Give to your neighbors in trouble, your poor and hurting neighbors. And then stewardship is potential. Stewardship is potential. We tithe because we want to experience God's increase. We put God first in our finances. And God somehow or another opens the windows of heaven upon the desires of the spirit, the desires of the soul, the desires of the body. And rather than being disordered desires, they become delightful desires. You see, every one of us, we need to recognize something. Desire is not a bad thing. It's what you do with that desire that matters more than anything. Would you stand with me and let me pray for you this morning? If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm just asking you to join me in this prayer right now. Pray it thoughtfully. Pray it sincerely. You don't have to pray word for word for what I pray, but think about what I pray and then pray with me. 
Say, Heavenly Father. You see, God wants to be your Father this morning. More than your Creator, He wants to be your Father. Like John Wesley, Lord, I came into this world with nothing. And I'll leave my time, my talent, my treasure, my testimony for people to do whatever with. And I realize that my sins have separated me from you. Sin is our moral failings. It's those disordered desires. You see, sex is a wonderful gift from God. But when it's used wrongly, it's a disordered desire. But in a loving, Christ-honoring marriage, it's a delightful desire. Earning money, having money, is a delightful desire. But a disordered desire is when you're trying to find your significance for money or you, you're greedy or you steal or you cheat. So when we confess sin, we're confessing those things that separate us from God. I don't understand it all, Lord. But I believe that Jesus Christ died for me. He died in my place. That means he died for your sins and my sins. And as much as I know how, I'm like those poor people in the Bible who said, Lord, have mercy on me. That's when God doesn't give us what we deserve. And they heard your words, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Hallelujah. I pray this in Jesus' name as I step across the line to follow you today. And everyone said, amen, amen, and amen. Now look at me and listen. If you prayed that prayer with me this morning, or if you prayed that prayer in this sanctuary, it's vitally important that you understand. We rejoice with you. The angels rejoice with you. Now, there may be people who don't rejoice. There was a time when a poor woman who had sinned greatly came into the presence of Jesus. And all of the religious people thought if he was a man of God, he wouldn't let this woman touch him. Jesus doesn't care who you are as long as you come to him in faith. She left saved, sanctified, pure, loved. They left with the judgment of God. They didn't understand the desire of God. The desire of God is to save you and me and make us his sons and daughters. Let's give him one final hand of praise this morning. This, would you? Hallelujah. Well, may the Lord bless you and refresh you as you fast before him until we come to Easter. May the Lord make you like a well-watered garden, and may you be refreshed with springs from heaven, and may they overflow in your life, bringing life to everyone you meet and touch this week. That's from Isaiah 58. God bless you. You're dismissed this morning.